Welcome to this week's episode of uh, the Brookie and Berger podcast. Uh, g'day, Darren Burgess. G'day, Brookie. How are you going? Pretty good. Pretty good. That was uh, the Susan Boyle version of You'll Never Walk Alone. As our listeners would know, we play a different version every week, as chosen by our guest and our very special guest this week. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have Anne Quinn as our uh, guest on the Brookie and Berger podcast. G'day, Anne. Good morning and thank you both. It's uh, certainly a great honour to be here with you and sharing uh, our journeys together. No, the pleasure is, is ours, Anne. Look, a lot of our Absolutely. younger audience may not have heard of, of Anne, but uh, Anne was sort of a performance scientist before there was performance science and um, back uh, way back in the 80s. And I thought it, it, we might start, Anne, by just... Uh, mm. You're telling us your, uh, taking us on your journey from uh, from a schoolgirl in uh, in Melbourne to where you are today. So, uh, leave it to you. Okay. Well, I started. I did a uh, human movement degree initially at um, at RMIT, which is now or was PIT back then, in the early '80s, and and. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I, I loved sport was my passion and I really wanted to follow that. And certainly sports science was still very much evolving. And in our first, in my first year of um, the human movement degree, I did, uh, we had to do a hundred hours field work experience. And so tennis being my first sport, which I loved, I rang around uh, a whole lot of coaches and, and well-respected people. And I said, you know, who's the number one person or who'd be the best coach to learn from? And, Nine out of ten people said Ian Barclay. So I rang up Ian Barclay and I said, can I come and get some field work experience with you? And, and he said, sure, love. And it was, that was the beginning of the journey. And, and you know, I, I still see Ian regularly all the time. And, and I started coaching, you know, those 100 hours with him. And he had so many amazing, great juniors who were all national champions. And I loved just coaching. At the same time, I got a job back at my old school, Loretto, to teach phys ed as a part-time job going through university. And I soon learned that, you know, I loved teaching phys ed, but half the kids really didn't like sport, whereas you'd go to tennis coaching and the kids just couldn't wait to see you. They were so excited. And I thought, I'd rather coach than teach. So I made that distinction, I guess, at the age of 18, that I wanted to coach more than teach. Uh, and so, and then because Ian had all these great kids, I, I soon learned that I loved working with the elite. I loved working with those kids that were so passionate that wanted to be the best that they could be. And being a, a young student that was so willing to learn and wanting to, to just grab at every bit of knowledge and everything I could learn, I, I used to take all the, the, uh, the great kids out to um, RMIT and I'd test them and I'd use them for every assignment that I had to do. And so I was always trying to evolve and and helping them be the best. And so to fast forward, you know, four or five years later when I finished my degree, I did a double degree and I did Indonesian as well and I did went on and did a dip-head at Melbourne uh, because I thought I'm not sure if I'm going to be a teacher or not, but uh, I wanted to, you know, like learn the, the qualities of being a teacher. But during that time I decided, okay, what are the best people in the world doing and there was no internet back in those days that you couldn't google and find out and my dad used to buy me uh, tennis magazine all the international tennis magazines so I'd see all these amazing facilities and places and I thought wow this would be great to go to and so I wrote 300 letters and so I started doing you know there was no typewriter there was all typewriters then and it was no <laughs> no um, computers to do it and I, I wrote 300 letters to a lot of the best facilities the best people in health and fitness and tennis 
And I finished I up I might with... remind our listeners, Anne, that uh, Darren, in the previous episode, boasted about writing 92 letters to the Premier League or to all the football clubs covered, in England. <laughs> but uh, clearly you're at a different class, which we're Absolutely. already on, on, Not just the letter level different. either, Brookie. Different <laughs> class on many levels. But go on, Anne, that's Sorry, fascinating. Sorry, please continue, Anne. Yeah, so those um, – and, look, I was willing to work for nothing. I just wanted to get experience. I thought as soon as I finished my degree, I just really want to – go and travel and find out what are the best people in the world doing. And, and like, I was willing to work for nothing. It didn't matter. I just wanted to to have the opportunity to see, you know, what are the best people, you know, what are the best coaches doing? What are they doing differently? What are the facilities like? What are they, you know, teaching in health and fitness? And because at the time there was one gym here in Melbourne, I think down in Camberwell, and it was uh, the Golden Bowl, I think it was. And, you know, they, they, we just didn't have, you know, that mindset and facilities and, and uh and so I thought, okay, I'm going to go for a year and explore. Well, that one year turned into five years overseas and I got <laughs> the opportunity to work with, at so many brilliant places and, and to travel all around Europe. And I actually finished up um, going and doing my master's degree. And one of the reasons for doing that was, well, there wasn't any master's degree you could do in sports science at the time here in Australia. But I'd had the opportunity as, as during those years of experience to become health and fitness director at the, it's now called the IMG Academy. It was Nick Volatieri's tennis academy then. And that was just an, an incredible facility. And it was around, you know, so many great people. We had, you know, athletes from 40 different countries. And I was, here, is, here I was working with four or five people in the top ten in the world. And I was like, oh, my God, this is just like I'm doing my dream job. And yet I felt like I really needed still to learn so much more to help those people because they were passionate about being the best. And so that's what led me to go back and, and doing my master's degree. And, again, I, look, I, I searched all over the states to find out, you know, where is the best place to go. And I finished up going to University of Illinois and I was fortunate to to work with Jack Roppel, who at the time was had been working with both Chris Everett and John McEnroe. So I became his little lackey and followed him everywhere. And it just it was just the best environment. It was you know like better than our Australian Institute of Sport at the time. Like I was saying to uh, someone the other day that you know Beckman, who invented the Beckman metabolic measurement card, had you know donated. He was still alive, but he donated eighty million dollars to our facility back in the eighties. Um, and so, you know, it was just an incredible environment to be around. And, and the people in the master's degree, we were, there was 20 of us selected from 18 different countries. And most people had already been Olympic coaches. And so you know, we used to sit around the lab and just talk till all hours of the more early morning and, and share ideas and share training methods. And it was just the most brilliant atmosphere to work in and, and to, you know, be inspired and, yeah, so after doing my master's degree, fast forward towards the end of that, uh, Pat Cash rang me up and, and Pat was one of those young kids that I did when I was doing my field work experience under Ian. He was one of those young kids that was aspiring to be the best he could be and fast forward another five years now he, you know, was trying to make it on the tour. He was ranked 463 in the world and had had a back injury, had been out for a while and really just totally lost all his fitness and need to kind of get back on track and I said well Pat I can't you know I'm nearly finished my master's degree I'm not quite but I you know I need to stay over here and finish it and so let's find like he came over and and I, I really just saw it as a way of giving thanks back to Ian who had been like another father and just helped me so much through my career but that four weeks that I you know started helping Pat turned into the next 10 years of my life so 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, and that was the beginning of the, the tennis journey. And, and at that time, you know, I think Martina Navratilova was probably the only person that had a team around her as a tennis player that, you know, really took that whole professionalism to a whole nother level. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that Pat was just so passionate about being the very best that he could be and, and wanted to do everything and, and would ask me great questions and always be challenging me. So you're always looking to, you know, what can we do to be better and what's the best way of doing things? And, and having the opportunity to travel, you got to always, I always go out of my way to, to seek out great coaches and, and not only in tennis but in all other sports as well and, and strength and conditioning and what are people doing and what are people doing to bring out the best in people. So it's been a, uh, and that was, you know, that was the beginning of a journey where I finished up. I travelled on the tour for the best part of, I think I spent probably about 12 years full-time on the tour, working with lots of different players. But, you know, also you had your times at home where you, you'd uh, come back and, you know, athletes in other sports came to me and said, can you help me? And, you know, sometimes it was athletes in sports that I'd never even really watched much. So, for example, there was a boxer and a kickboxer and an AFL team and, a, you know, Australian cricket team. It was like people in all different sports came. And, and like I said, you know, like to the boxers and things, I said, look, I've, I've never done boxing. I'm, I'm not the best person to help you. I really, you know, I'm sure there's going to be other people around that can help you. But they pleaded with me as a result of, you know, seeing my success and things like that. And I said, look... I'll have a go. And, and so what I would do is I'd go out and, you know, I'd learn from the, their coaches. I'd go and have boxing lessons or I'd have kickboxing lessons or I'd have fencing lessons, depending on what the sport was of the person, in order to really get into what are they doing and what, what do I need to learn, what do I need to do to help them be their very best and learn from their coaches and observe all their training sessions, observe how they were how they were doing everything. And, and so, you know, you're making up things along the way, but it's like that was based on a whole lot of experiences and, and wisdom and knowledge and that you've gained from everything you've done before. So, look, it's been a, a, an amazing journey, which I've really loved and, and, you know, I still continue to do to this day. Oh, that's fantastic. And let, let's go back. And uh, you touched on Pat Cash. Uh, that was, what, 1986 that uh, he was 463 in the world and you, you uh, got involved with him? That's correct, yes. Yeah. And uh, take us through what, um, how, you, how you handle I mean, obviously, you know, Pat was a pretty, uh, you know, charismatic, volatile sort of character. What were the particular challenges for him and what, uh, what did you really need to work on with, uh, with Pat? Because pretty quickly he got some amazing results. Yeah, so back, back in 1986, like at, at 463 in the world, you're not earning any money. It's, um, you know, it's... It's a struggle, and so he couldn't even afford to bring Anne. And like I was, as I said, I was happy to work for nothing. I just finished my master's degree, and I said to Pat, "As long as you pay my travel and expenses, you know, I'm, I'm just happy to help you." I, I, I believed in him. I believed in him, and I knew that he could do it. And he, and he was willing to do whatever it takes. And so, you know, we were together 24/7 right through for that next six months, traveling and playing some tournaments and and training every day. And so, you know, you got to construct your whole days in terms of what you wanted to work on the court and we'd evaluate everything we'd go not only you know technically tactically physically mentally we'd look into all the nutritional side you know we made sure that you know he was having great sleep we were doing recovery things we're just looking after every aspect of his life and he he was open to really you know doing what doing every little detail and so that was that was great and so 
because he was putting the hard work, he, he was getting the results and he could keep seeing himself improving. And it's like it was that year in um, 86 we, we made it actually through to the Davis Cup final and, and he said to me, you know, will you come home and help me prepare for the Davis Cup final? And, again, it was, um, you know, we worked incredibly hard. We did every little detail. Like he, he, when he was staying at home, if his mum cooked meals, I'd have to go and inspect what was in the food to make sure what ingredients were. Like that's how level of the level of detail he was. And he'd really, you know, monitor, you know, we'd be, it was just heart rate watches it back then, but it was like we were monitoring everything. We were monitoring his recovery, what it was like when he woke up. Um, you know, he had a float team <laughs> put in at home. He just would do everything and it was always having massages to recover, etc. So we just, we went through every aspect and when we set goals we didn't just set you know there was never you know let's aim to you know I want to win Wimbledon or I want to you know become a certain ranking it was always what do I need to do with every stroke you know so it wasn't just forehands and backhands it was backhand approach backhand topspin backhand slice it was looking at every aspect of every part of his technical performance and then looking you know not just at speed and agility but planned agility reactive agility movement backwards sideways forwards and analyzing every detail of that so we'd be doing a lot of um, video analysis and back then and we'd be carrying around those big video cameras and you know it was a real effort to kind of find a, a vhs recorder and play them back and slow it down and go over it and look at the technique and you know so we do you know i had a you know the big computer i used to carry around and it was you know people would come up to you and you had a computer on a plane because it was such a different thing and you know we'd be doing I'd be doing nutritional analysis of every everything that we ate and we'd I'd be charting every one of his matches so there was always something to do to improve and to get better and you know that was the exciting part because you had a an athlete that was so committed to wanting to be his best as well. What about your relationship with with the, with Ian I mean how did that work with the two of you working working together because it sounds like you were involved in pretty much everything. Yeah, so look, Ian and I got on famously, and we, and we, you know, we we were a team. It was really the three of us that would just be, you know, were together all the time. And we'd, you know, I'd be at every training session, every practice session, and you know, Ian had just this fantastic ability to communicate and to understand and to to speak, you know, to say what he needed to say, but also to pull back when needed and to understand the pressures that were on and and you know I. You know, as you get to know an athlete so well, you know when to say something and when not to say something. And so often, um, you know, on long runs, you know, you'd hear the frustrations, you'd hear what was upsetting, what was challenging and things like that. But, like, Ian just had this great ability and we'd sit around the table and talk together. We'd watch the videos together. We'd just, we'd just bounce off each other. And so it was the openness of that communication and listening and hearing each other and but letting Pat be the lead as well but you know taking advice from both Ian and I and we'd always you know say this is what I feel like we should do this is what I had planned but this is what I feel like we should do based on that that training session and uh, yeah so it was a look it was it's been a great relationship where we all work together. And you mentioned that that Davis Cup win I mean I, I guess to, for most of us we all remember that and that was sort of almost really the turning point in in Pat's career all of a sudden uh, you know, he was at the forefront of Australian tennis. Yeah, that was an interesting uh, interesting time because, like, I, as I said, I'd been living in the States the previous five years and I came home to – and Pat brought me home to Australia for, to help him prepare for that Davis Cup final and I was at that stage undecided whether I was going to stay in the States or come back to Australia. And um, 
And so, like, I'd go and pick Pat up every day where they trained, like, for several weeks beforehand at Kuyong, and I'd pick Pat up every day at 2 o'clock and we'd go down to Royal South Yarra and do our training sessions. And then, you know, like, Neil Fraser stepped in and said, look, you know, I'm the Davis Cup captain. <laughs> you know, I'm going to take charge here and you're not allowed to do anything. And it's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And and uh, <laughs> And so... You know, I said to Neil, like, I'm actually here to I'll help. I'm going to be helping you because I'm helping Pat and I've been with him every day for the last six months. I know what it's going to take to bring out the best in him. And, and luckily, like, Pat was, it was, he's a really strong character and he just stood up and said, look, I'm going to do whatever it's going to take to make me the best player and this is what I'm going to do. And we're picking me up every day at 2 o'clock and we're going to go and work on, you know, stretching our speed and agility, our on-court movement. It's like... And, you know, he stood up to Neil and he said, well, I'm not going to play Dave's Cup if you won't let me prepare in the very best way possible. And, uh, you know, thankfully, <laughs> you know, because he was such a strong character, you know, we were allowed to continue to do, you know, the routines that we'd built up and everything. And, um, and look, it was the most amazing final. <laughs> you know, he had best of five set matches, you know, two sets to love down against Pernfors in that final match, which was the deciding match. And, you know, and, and back then it was best of five sets, which went, you know, some of them 12, 10, 13, 11, and uh, no tiebreakers. And, uh, you know, he came back and won that match. So it was just, you know, an amazing testament to his hard work and everything that he'd put in. And, and like, even at two sets to love down, I remember, like, I was sitting next to his dad and I said, I know he can do this. He's got the strength. He's got the, you know, he's got the endurance. We've done so many, <laughs> so much tough training and, you know, up, you know, long hill sprints and 400 metres and 200 metres, like he, he knows and in the heat and everything, it's like we were so well prepared and he knew in his heart and his soul that he can last out the distance and do whatever it takes. And I think, you know, that, you know, that confidence comes from having done all that hard work. And I've got, we've got lots of things to talk to you about. I don't want to labour the Pat Cash thing, but touch through the, the lead up to, to Wimbledon in, uh, in 87. So from that time of the... Uh, of the uh, Davis Cup win, which is what, December, and then uh, up to Wimbledon the following year? So after the, you know, Pat came runner-up in the Australian Open a few weeks later after the Davis Cup final, that was in January 87, and, you know, so suddenly he was earning money and, and he said to me, you know, I want you to, to come and travel and help me prepare, and it's like suddenly I had my dream job. It's like, you know, from not knowing what I was going to do, finishing my master's degree, and it's like, oh, my God, this is me doing my dream job, and I was loving it. So... I did get to travel with him right through and it was, you know, because you're with someone the whole time, you, you got to prepare, you got to do, you got to structure your days, you got to, you know, instead of just writing a training program and sending it off with someone, you got to, you know, you'd, you'd prepare your programs, you'd plan ahead. But as we as we all know, it's like hmm. we've got to react to the, the day, the situation. You've woken up and felt exhausted or, you you know, you're recovering from a, or a little bit sore from the previous day. You've got to react and go with the flow. And so, you know, we planned, you know, Ian planned what tournaments he'd play. You know, in fact, what happened was he, he lost first round of the French Open. And um, I'll never forget, like, it was, you know, he was devastated, you know, having come the previous Grand Slam, having come runner-up and then to go out first round. And admittedly, clay wasn't always his best service, but... You know, he was devastated and I, I remember, like, just going for a run afterwards and, um, you know, just a light recovery run. And I said, come on, we're gonna, this, is, this is great. This is a fantastic opportunity. We're going to get two weeks ahead on the grass ahead of everybody else and because it's such a, a different surface to playing you know, on clay to playing on the grass. 
And, you know, you just turn it around. It's like, you know, let's get on the first plane out of here and, and get to England and just get all set up. And, and look, that was, you know, I say, look, it was a blessing in disguise because we really got to, you know, get two weeks ahead of everybody else. And at that stage, back in the calendar, it was only two weeks between Wimbledon or between the French Open and Wimbledon. So it didn't give you much time. So suddenly having four weeks to prepare absolutely made the difference. And we were able to get on the grass and, you know, Pat lived in London, so he was at home um, and very familiar with everything. So that really made it, you know, made it so much easier. And Wimbledon itself? Wimbledon itself was, was very exciting. We had Jeff Bond on board as well. And because I said to Pat, like, you're doing everything. You're doing, you're taking care of every little detail. But I said, we need to look after your, your mind as well. And I'd always, you know, I'd always taken a, a strong interest in the, the mental side of the game and I'd done up, you know, had, I was lucky enough to study under Dan Gord, who was a US Olympic sports psychologist and he was uh, one of my teachers and mentors at University of Illinois and I'd done a lot of things. But, you know, I said to Pat, we need to, you know, you need, you need to cope with the incredible pressure when you've got, you know, sometimes, the, you know, we'd be getting like, he'd be getting 800 press calls a day. Like it was enormous. Um, wow. And, you know, you'd walk outside your, um, you know, he'd walk outside his home in London, you know, we'd just be going off to go for an early morning run and it'd be 50 photographers. You know, it's just like, you know, there was a lot of pressure, like the next door neighbours, for example, would be being offered, you know, £100,000 to say <laughs> say something about, you know, <laughs> to make a comment. And, you know, it's like it was, you know, there was just all sorts of pressure coming from media and everything. And so it's really just, it was, you know, wanting to take care of those things. So Jeff was brilliant in coming on board as well. And, and so we, we really had the, a great setup in terms of what we were doing with our routines every day. I, you know, I'd sat down with his father um, a few months before Wimbledon and we went through and we watched, and this is on videotape, we watched every one of his best matches and we picked out all the points um, and we put a video together. It took us like a couple of weeks of watching all these matches and we put a video um, together, I had to have it done professionally, of all his best points on grass. And back then the Australian Open was played on grass, so he'd had that, you know, in the Davis Cup had been played on grass, so he'd, he'd had a lot of grass court preparation in terms of all that extra, those extra matches and preparation back in Australia. And, you know, I put that, we put that to music and, and um, you know, so that was one of the things that he, you know, I made him watch. I wouldn't, we wouldn't let him watch any TV, wouldn't let him watch newspaper. We went and hired videotapes for him to watch movies of whatever he wanted rather than turn on any media. And he also had this inspirational video, which is seeing him playing his very best tennis to his favourite music. And so that was, uh, you know, it was no second prize was the, uh, the, the song he wanted to choose, he chose to have that um, nice put choice. to. Yeah. And so he'd watch that every single morning. And that was like, you know, after breakfast, that was the, you know, we'd sit and just relax and just do some meditation, just really connect in. Then he'd watch that. Then we'd go on our, our pre-morning run and we'd do some, you know, quick agility things with tennis balls down at the local um, cricket pitch down at, at Fulham and, and, you know, just got our day off to a great start and everything was planned. Like Ian would plan who he was going to practice against depending on the style of play, who he was going to play against and, you know, we, you know, I would cook, I'd cook up for him. We had special other meals brought in. So everything was, you know, because you're at home, you're able to take care of everything. So that was brilliant. And it's, um, for those who sort of don't know your history, because, you know, often now people associate 
successful high performance people as those who are, have a lot of Twitter followers or something like that. Um, everything that you've just talked about in the last 10 minutes, so meditation, mindfulness, bringing in the mental side of things, um, making sure that uh, the athlete in this, in this case, Pat, has ticked all his boxes, knowing that he could go into games with confidence, um, measuring what you thought, <clears throat> excuse me, measuring what you thought was important, but crucially for me, um, the science aspect as well as the art aspect, who you this week dictates who you practice, how you practice, um, as I mentioned before, the meditation and things. Where, where did you come up with this? Because that wasn't sort of in vogue at the, t- <clears throat> excuse me, at the time. It wasn't in any way, you know, you couldn't read books about it. You couldn't, uh, there wasn't particularly many research articles about it. How did you come up with this? You know, we're talking you know 30 years ago yeah really you know I I always was um I was always reading I was always like looking out for what other people were doing and I you know you'd catch like you had to like just read magazines or you you know you're listening to things on tv when I was living in the states and and just picking up on things and I just thought there's you know, like, for example, you know, we do sand dune sprints and, and um, you know, I'd really worked a lot on my own, you know, breathing to reduce heart rates and things like that. And and I remember, like, you know, Pat didn't want to, when I first introduced to him the concept of, um, you know, we need to look after your mind, he goes, like, his immediate reaction was like, nothing's wrong with me. I know, I'm confident I can do anything, Anne. And I said, well, totally I agree with you, but it's like there's so many other aspects of this performance that you can learn. And so the way I introduced it to him, I was like, when we're doing sand dune sprints and like, like I was a sprinter, so I, you know, I, and I, I knew exactly how far to start and, you know, to start in front of him to kind of, so we were just kind of catching each other or, you know, at the very end. And then I, because we we're both wearing heart rate watches I'd say to him, okay, now in recovery is really important. Let's see who I'm going to, I'm going to race you to bring my, uh, bring my heart rate down, bring our heart rates down. And so I used to always beat him. And, of course, he was such a competitor, he hated it. And I go, Pat, the reason why I'm beating you is that, you know, it's the type of breath that I'm doing. And and so that kind of, you know, so he, he's like, oh, okay, you've got to teach me that. I want to learn that. And 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 so I'd picked up a lot of these things in answer to your question, Darren. I'd picked up a lot of these things just through, like, Dan Gould being such a great um mentor and sports psychologist I'd already done a few different courses and been to quite a few different seminars in the states and so you'd picked up little tidbits here and there and and I guess it was just I was always open to what can I do to help my athletes be the best that they can be and so wherever I could pick up little just you know little one percenters I would always uh you know look further and what what do you think um if you were to pinpoint any of those things that you implemented with Pat was the biggest turnaround if you could if you could sort of pinpoint one that you thought had the biggest impact on him obviously already sort of competitive but struggling a lot when when he reached out to you um is there anything that you can put your put your finger on that you've maintained since then that this is an essential part of any of the programs that i'm working with despite the variety of athletes you've worked with you know, I think it's the details in the preparation that, you know, it's like we would absolutely test everything, you know, like so I'd always be taking, you know, I remember going to, you know, I'd go into to see Brookie at Olympic Park and we'd, you know, back then we'd be doing Cybex testing of the, you know, the hamstrings and the quadriceps and the shoulders. It's like we'd look at every aspect of performance and we'd look at every part of every stroke and he was really into 
like, for example, studying the serves of other people and seeing what they were doing. So because we were taking care of every aspect and thinking, OK, what can we do to do better here? And he was really in on that and Ian was too. And so, therefore, it's like we weren't leaving any stone unturned. And I think that's what gives you confidence, knowing that you've, you've done everything you possibly can. And then it's like, Pat, you've just got to trust yourself. It's like there's nothing more you could have done. You've given it your all and you're in fantastic shape, you're ready to go. And so I think the devil is in the detail and it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's being around 24-7 as well so you can yep. have the, the right time to say the thing that was necessary because it's not, not just, you know, if you're, if you're talking to an athlete and you need to get a message across, you've got to pick the time to say that. You know, like it's, you know, when he had a loss, for example, he was, you know, he was absolutely livid. He was, you know, you just stay right away and just let him cool down in his own time. Like he'd be putting his hands through walls. Like he was so upset. But it's like, you know, the fact that he was so upset, I said, that's how much you care. I see that. I know you're upset because you've put your heart and soul into everything. And, you know, it wasn't, it didn't come through today, but it's like, you know, that's when we get back on the horse and we go again and it's like we can do it and we'll monitor everything. So I think, Darren, the, you know, the, in answer to your question, it's going into the detail. And so that's what gives people confidence, knowing that you've done everything. You know, even monitoring your sleep, you know, and your well-being and how you're feeling and checking in all the time. And, and in the athletes that you work with from, you know, from a different, a range of different sports um, at the moment, uh, both individual and team in terms of consultancies to, to all the strategies that you employed with Pat that you've spoken about in the last sort of half or so, they still uh, run through those programs, albeit with perhaps different technology and, and different techniques, but the same uh, sort of common principles? Absolutely, because it's actually, it's looking at, you know, it's looking for all those little things where things are not quite right and it's like it's picking, you know, there's always going to be a hundred little things but it's picking what's going to make the biggest difference and that's, you know, you, you know that from when you do your detailed analysis and, yes. and you know, it's the art of coaching as well. It's like, you know, talking to the coaches, they'll know, you know, they'll understand the athlete a lot better and, and asking the athlete, you know, a lot of athletes will, well, this is what I feel and it's not often sometimes maybe what the coach feels but it's like listening to them and then finding out what's underneath that and and having those discussions feeling because often it's you know it's something going on at home or it's in a relationship or family situation and it's like and and when you uncover things at a deeper level it's like then you're allowing them to be free so that they can you know flow and be their best yeah nice and uh Last one for me for the moment anyway. One of the things that we like to sort of find out is how uh, our guests handle some of the tough conversations. Um, so you mentioned when Pat did lose a game. What if there's a, a belief, and not, not necessarily with someone like Pat, but maybe some of your current athletes that um, – you know, monitoring your sleep is useless or um, a certain training principle that you believe in, um, they haven't believed in because of their culture or their history. Um, how do you handle those situations in trying to, if you like, convince the athlete that, um, that you know, this, this will help them? And that's, look, that's the beauty of having a lot of experience and I guess you combine that experience with your, your knowledge and your wisdom and 
and just like I, I say, like tuning in, I say tuning into the athletes so you kind of get to know them and when's the right time to say something. But in having those conversations where they don't believe perhaps in something, it's like showing them with science, first of all. It's like this is not me talking but here's the proof that this will work. And also I love sharing stories. Well, you know, this is what happened when I did this with, with this particular person and this is how it changed. And often, you know, like I'll get the athletes to, to share their own story with them. Um, it's, it's giving lots of examples. It's like, and then they can see, and then, you know, what I do sometimes, like, I remember like Pat Torrey's Achilles tendon and it's like, and everyone said, look, you're never going to be able to regain your speed. You'll never be as fast as you were before. And so like, I remember tracking down Linford Christie, who was the, you know, the the world champion and gold medalist hundred meter sprinter at the time. And, you know, we were able to track him down through management sources and things. And it's like, and, you know, let's go and, talk to him let's go and see what he does in training what can we do to learn from him to get back that speed and you know we did it's like not taking on the beliefs of other people but you know inspiring them in other ways and finding out what's going to be their driver to inspire them and so the tough conversations become an inspirational conversation because they realize hey well this perhaps belief that I had about that method was not serving me and it's like let's give it a go and again it's understanding the likes and dislikes of athletes too in terms of, you know, if they don't like swimming, it's like you don't want to be putting them in the water when doing, you know, swimming training. It's like it's listening to them too and I think listening to them is really key as well. Just to finish off on the on the Pat Cash story, obviously uh, Annie won Wimbledon that uh, year in 1987. It's one of those moments uh, in, in people of my generation, you know, sort of thing, you remember where you were when you uh, when you saw Pat Cash mm-hmm. win, win the Wimbledon. I was actually in Zagreb at the World mm-hmm. Student Games where the whole Australian team was watching in the foyer. Oh. And, uh, amazing, uh, amazing day. But the uh, that victory of his is memorable for uh, what happened straight afterwards. Absolutely, yeah. He climbed. <laughs> he climbed up to give us a to share the moment with us, which was extremely special because it was something that you know it's it's common today, but no one had ever done before. And you know, I think all the, the you know people in the royal box are a bit aghast and like, what's happening and what's he's doing? Because there was no stairs then, and he had to climb up on people's shoulders. And yeah, look, it was a very special moment in sport. And yeah, it was just wonderful to share that you know that special memory and that special moment with him when he really did win. So it was brilliant. Fantastic. And you worked with the other Pat as well, Pat Rafter. And mm-hmm. uh, it strikes me that they're polar opposites in their uh, their personality and their character, obviously both great tennis players. But uh, what were the, were the commonalities and differences between the two of them? Absolutely. Look, Pat, and, and it's a similar type story, like, Pat Rafter came to me and he was 760 in the world and his parents came down from Queensland and said, look, we've got a, well, he was 19 at the time actually, and, you know, we've, we've got a, our son, we believe it's, you know, got a lot of potential and could be really good. And, and you know, Pat just, Pat Rafter didn't, just didn't believe in himself at all. And, you know, and so my first couple of days spent with him was actually going through detailed evaluation and it's like, and we've, finished up with like I think it was like 35 or 40 pages of things that he needed to work on and and for Pat Rafter he was like over you know it's like oh my god this is just so much and I go Pat that's exciting I said that's really exciting because it's like these are all the things you can do to improve and I said you're already a great athlete and uh and so we were able to tick off a lot of the the boxes very quickly because he was such a great athlete and he was a quick learner 
And so he could start seeing his improvements. And But, you know, being one of nine children, you know, they weren't um, – it was difficult to be able to afford a coach. And, like, in fact, you know, Pat had grown up with his older brothers having lessons and he'd just get 10 minutes at the end of a lesson of his older brother because that's all they could afford for the lesson. And so in many ways – you know, he was raw in terms of his knowledge of tennis, in terms of his development of tennis. At, you know, at 19, you know, he'd never even made a, he wasn't making the Queensland team, let alone the Australian team at the time. And so, you know, I remember going, I actually went to like John Newcomb and Tony Roach and I said, look, I've got this this guy, uh, like I think he's, like I believe he's really good. I, he's got a lot of potential. I was like, I'd love you to come and just watch him and just see what you think. It you know, they, they watched, but they didn't take that much of an interest. And it's like, and I said to Pat, like, I know you can do this. And it's like, it's getting coaching. And I said, you've got to have to, you know, you have to pay to get one-on-one coaching. You know, he was in a, a group of six having group coaching at the time. And, you know, I sat down with his family and I said, look, he's got the potential and it is a risk, I know, but it's like, he needs that one-on-one he's make up for all the things that he's, he hasn't yet developed. And, you know, all his family, you know, his older brothers, because he was number seven out of the nine kids, and so his his older older um, family members all put in money, and they put money together to hire a um, a coach who was Bob Carmichael at the time, and you know that was the start, I think, of you know him really developing his game so much better, and so the same principles applied. It's like you know with with Pat Rafter, it was you know I wasn't travelling with him as much in the early days, and and um, and so I'd write programs for him and, you know, give him a program to do. But he'd go overseas and he'd just play tennis and he'd play tournaments, but he wouldn't do any of the training afterwards. And and so when he'd come home and we'd go get back into training, it's like we were kind of starting another, you know, we had to go backward, you know, we're back where we started. We'd lost that 10% game we'd made. And so, you know, I said, you know, I said to his parents, it's like he was the one that had to be pushed but, like, when you were with him, he'd give you absolutely everything of himself. But when you sent him on the road, he would just do whatever the coach wanted him to do. He wouldn't do the little extras. He wouldn't go out and do extra training. And so and that's just a totally different personality. You know, if I wasn't with Pat Cash, you know, he would do everything to the letter T and then add a few more as well. And, in fact, you'd have to say no, whereas Pat Rafter, you had to, you know, I said to, I finished up saying to his parents, he needs to have a mate with him. He needs to have, you know, one of his brothers with him traveling to, to push him to do all the extras. And, and that was a difference, you know, between the personalities, whereas, um, you know, give absolutely everything of themselves at the time when you're with them. But with Pat Rafter, it was just, you know, it's finding out what's the best way to bring out the best in that person. And again, it's like when he had someone with him, he'd absolutely having fun he'd enjoy it he'd be giving everything of himself when he's pushing himself along with a mate and so again it's that's just understanding personality so even though they were the same serve volleyer type players such different personalities and and it's learning to understand okay what's it going to take for me to bring out the best in this person enough tennis for a while you've worked with you said a number of different uh, different sports um take us through your, your boxing experience so the boxing experience came about, you know, I, there was a, a few features on TV where people had seen me training Pat and, and this boxer and his father had um, seen me doing, you know, like I used to do a lot of things with tennis balls, you know, not with a racket in hand but doing speed and agility things for quick hands, quick feet, etc. And um, And so 
you know, they asked me to come on and I said, look, as I said, I, as I explained before, I, you know, I had to get in the boxing ring and learn about boxing and, and have boxing lessons and watch training sessions. And it was great. Like I finished up training Craig Trotter for seven years and he became a world champion. But, you know, I never would have known that at the beginning, not knowing um, boxing as a sport as I, as I know tennis. But, um, you know, it was, again, doing everything. And it's like what was great about boxing for me is I learned so much too. It's like I finished up, you know, getting all my athletes in the boxing ring and boxing as a training method because it was so good for quick hands and quick feet and reaction time, response time. It was brilliant. And so I knew with, and I get Craig involved and that was motivating for him when you're taking, you know, I remember having his training session one day with Merv Hughes and, 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 um, and Pat Cash. And I, like, I knew that the guys weren't going to get hurt because Craig, Craig was, you know, quick enough to pull back a but it's like they could still go full out and it, like it's a brilliant training method for so many other things and and so you know I, I always say my athletes are my greatest teachers and I learned so much from you know boxing technique and 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 you know the way they trained I didn't agree with some of the the things that the the uh <laughs> the boxing coaches would do and <laughs> the way they train their abdominals and things like that but it was uh again it's like being exposed to whole different training methods and different ways of doing things and I think look variety in any training program is is you know is key and having fun and doing something different but working hard and doing something different you know the athletes loved it so that was you know it was brilliant it was great you remember you know Craig had the um the lead-up fight to, you know, Jeff Fennig at the Nana Centre. And it's like, you know, the atmosphere with 15,000 people at a boxing match is like no, no other sporting event ever. It's just incredible. So, yeah, lots of learning. And, and I, as I say, you know, athletes teach you so much by what they do, but the questions they ask and just always seeking out to be the very best. And last from me in this section, I mean, at the moment, you're working with a, uh, a wheelchair athlete, Shingo, from uh, Japan, who's the, the number one wheelchair athlete uh, tennis player in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, how did that come about? So I do a lot of coach education work, and I was in Japan. This is back in 2006, doing some uh, coach education with their uh, top coaches. And they said, look, we've got a, um, a wheelchair player who would, uh, you know, just wants to ask you some questions. Are you, you know, can you help him? And I said... Sure, look, I don't really know a lot about wheelchair tennis because it's very different. And um, However, you know, the, the only time you can get a court actually in Japan is it's like 5 o'clock in the morning because they're booked out from 6 a.m. right through. And so, you know, the next day I went out to, you know, I got to the court at 4.30 because he was starting at 5 and he'd been there already since quarter past 4 warming up talking about dedication. And um, and I watched him hit and, and, you know, he said to me at the end of the session, he said, and this is all through an interpreter because he didn't speak a word of English at the time. And he said, you know, I have a dream. You know, do you think I could ever be number one in the world? And, you know, I saw the way he, he played and practised and I said, Shingo, if you really want to do something, if you really, really, really want to give it absolutely everything, you know, you've got the ability. And I can see that. But there's, there's going to be having a lot of things you're going to have to change. And so... You know, again, another athlete that is just committed, you know, so dedicated. And look, I was lucky. I'd, um, John Lindsay was a um, Paralympian 100, 200, 400-metre sprinter, um, multiple, you know, triple gold medalist, and I'd trained him for seven or eight years. So I knew what it took in terms of the training methods for, um, you know, Paralympic athletes. And I said to she said, 
you know, John on average would do 20Ks a session to sprint 100 metres. <laughs> and I said, you're doing like 2Ks oh. in a session. And I said, you know, we just need to totally <laughs> revamp all your training methods, everything you're doing. You know, there's lots of things we can improve technically on the court. And so, again, like I went and spent a week in Tokyo with him and, and we went through everything and he would just like, you know, in Japan the culture is such that you give them something to do, they will follow it like a recipe to the letter T. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what he did. He just, you know, every single day was planned out in terms of what he had to do, forehands, backhands, serves, volleys, you know, what he had to do physically, what he had to do in the gym, what he had to do in terms of sprints on the track and hill sprints and everything. And, you know, like from not even being able to get into a Grand Slam, he, you know, he finished up, fast forward another year or so he um he won a grand slam and and like now i'm still working with him what is it 14 years later and you know he won the australian open was his 44th grand slam title this year and is still number one in the world so it's been you know an amazing journey just to you know travel through the highs and lows with him and and share that experience so that's been incredible and you know i think it's it's great it's sometimes easy to get to number one, but to stay at number one when everyone's watching and copying everything you're doing, it's like, you know, that's another challenge in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Anne, we don't have long left, but I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, and uh, given your past experience, which is as, as diverse and as um, uh, acclaimed as anybody in the industry, what is uh, your number one tip for recovery? You know, something sleep is the sleep is key, and it's like you know I have all my athletes do sleep studies, and like there's heaps of things you can do for recovery from the way you eat, from the having massage, from stretching, and and you know going and pool work, doing ice baths, like I've done it all. But you know something that the the those it's sometimes it's the simple things. You know, it's actually you know I get people into sleep routines. What are you doing? You know, what, what are you doing the hour before you go to sleep? You know, so many people, are, they're, watch, they're on their, you know, checking their Twitter and Instagram and Facebook accounts. They're, they're listening and, you know, watching TV. It's maybe a crime or, a, you know, bad news on the news or whatever. It's like, you know, that all affects us so much. And it's like it's having a really good sleep routine, getting, you know, like some, some of my guys will travel with pillows. You know, it's like it's, mm-hmm. it's doing whatever it takes to create the right environment around you to prepare your body to sleep and getting into rhythms and getting into routines. Um, yeah, so that would, that would be my number one tip. You know, as I said, there's so Brilliant. many other things, yeah. But it's the simple Brilliant. things. And I think people try to make things so – it doesn't have to be so, um, you know, something that's too difficult. It's just the simple things that really make a big difference. Brilliant. And the last one for me, let's say that uh, Pat Cash or whoever has got a, I don't know, a three o'clock game on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. What's the day look like leading up to that? And it's a final, uh, Wimbledon final, um, and it's, yeah, let's say, three or four o'clock. It's a, a bit of a universal time when people might uh, have big matches on. What What is the ideal prep look like? I realise it might be different from athletes but what does that day look like in in your experience? So we always we had a four hour routine before every match, and the reason why I say four hour, like it was four hours is you had to allow travel time, and we always allowed extra travel time in case you know traffic and things like that. Sure. Um, but you know that four hours started with with um, with breakfast, 
and then you know after after breakfast just kind of relaxing and chilling out on the couch you know like you might be playing with these kids or whatever but that at that time you'd kind of watch the video um you know for inspiration and then he'd often just do some you know just gentle gentle stretching and 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 that you know just like on the carpet and then we'd go on our um we'd go on a like a little warm-up run and we'd go down for like half an hour and we'd just do a lot of a lot, you know, just a slow run, but then, you know, gradually do some strides and some sprints and then do some really short, sharp, quick agility work um, with tennis balls, getting the reactions going. Um, then travel to um, travel to the tournament site. You know, you've got to you check in, get all, everything organised in your locker and things like that. You'd go on and do a um, another warm-up on site um, and then go and do your practice. So you practice with the, the player um, you know, the, the talk, you know, from the coach, that would have all been done. The, the game plan would have all been gone over the four so you knew what you're doing. You know, he'd have a session where he'd be visualising and, and that would be done, you know, visualisation, mental preparation would be done immediately following breakfast but also done just before the match as well. And then, you know, it was actually chilling out in the locker room and, you know, <laughs> saying jokes or, you know, just anything to get the person to relax is really you know, putting them at ease, letting them just, you know, the work's been done, you're ready to go, you know, you've visualised, you know exactly your game plan, you feel the work's been done and just reinforcing, you know, two or three key points that you, they might need to focus on in the game. But it's like it's letting them then relax and just go out and give it give it their best and that's all they have I to do. I love that concept. love that concept of the four-hour routine. No matter when it is, it's sort of work back from four hours and, yeah uh, and and a quick one to follow up for me the theory behind the the run and the short sharp agility work absolutely love it uh, i don't think it's done well enough in some instances but what's your theory behind that on the day of the game so that came about was you know it came about again just from experience in terms of okay what do, what you know what did he feel like he needed to do to prepare and it's like we tried different things but it's like he always liked and you know like when we were at the Australian Open we'd go you know we used to do the bridge run <laughs> um, you know yeah. on the Australian Open site that would be like you know just a 10, 10 minute 12 minute easy warm up run and then we'd go into a um, you know literally use a car park space lots of short sharp agility I'd do some little resistance we'd put some bands on um, and the reason behind it was to really, you know, just be quick, be alert, be on your toes, get that intensity up and be feeling really good. It's like when you feel really sharp in your mind, when you feel like I can get to anything, it's like you're ready seeing things. It's like that's when you feel great. And it's like, and then it's like, you know, like when you go out into the practice court, you're not just starting to warm up readily, you're ready to go. And so my theory behind it was really, working with each person to find out, okay, what do we need to do to help you feel absolutely ready to fire as soon as you go on court? And, it, and you tweak that for other people, you know, different people, depending on their sure. their sport, et cetera. But, again, it's like, and that was like the pre-warm-up before the warm-up on the court. And then we do another warm-up. Like in tennis, you've got to be ready to go. Like if you're playing second or third match on, you don't know what that time is. So you'd, you'd then do another quick agility warm-up because you couldn't get on a tennis court at that stage. You'd do another quick agility warm-up literally 10 minutes before you go on court. Yep. Yeah, nice. Oh, that's superb. So that was just my experiences that come in from, you know, trying different things over the years. 
And a lot of what you do in the sporting world is transferable to the rest of life, I guess. And I know you do quite a bit of work with corporate executives. Is that something you enjoy doing? Yeah, I love the variety of it. And, you know, like the principles are, are exactly the same for athletes. It's about, you know, peak performance. It's about people wanting to be the very best that they can be. And, again, it's like we're talking about sleep routines, like something like that for a, a um an executive is is critical it's like they're under incredibly high stress their you know their 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 cognitive load is really spent at the end of the day and so they need to they need to recover you know it's looking at you know when we do the you know the first beat heart rate variability analysis on them it's like you know it's looking at what what are the times during the day when they're really highly stressed what are the times when they're recovering are they able to balance their recovery and their you know, and be energised, you know, what, where are they at? You know, what are the effects of alcohol? You know, it, you, can, you can tell someone, but when you show them the physiological results, it really speaks a thousand words and says everything. So it's been wonderful to, to inspire and, and show, you know, just how they can bring out the best in themselves and help them be the best and, and lead their organisations. Uh, fantastic. And we've run out of time. I'd love to chat all day. Uh, I mean, you've had a remarkable career. I mean, uh, people talk, uh, you know, David Bailesford's talked, spoken in recent years about marginal gains. I mean, that's, he's only 35 years behind Anne Quinn. And uh, <laughs> you really were, uh, hmm. were, you know, being a holistic practitioner before we even heard the word holistic, to be honest. Uh, it's quite a remarkable journey. And uh, we're certainly very grateful for you sharing that journey with, uh, with us and our listeners. So uh, thanks, Anne, and all the best. Thank you so much and it's certainly been an honour and congratulations to both of you for the not only the amazing contribution that you've both made to the sporting world but to, uh, you know, doing this podcast and, and, and inspiring all the young sports science professionals and, and physicians and that and, and people that, you know, want to be the best that they can be. I think it's fantastic. So congratulations and wishing you all both every success with this podcast. Well, thanks, thanks Anne. Anne. Really we just we just it. we just love talking to people like you and hearing your stories. It's uh, it's, it's inspirational for us as well. Thanks, okay, you. we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Anne.